0: We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate
1: change and the last generation that can do something about it.
0: Women still face backlash at every level of decision making and in all domains of their life. Gender equality is a woman's issue. It is not. It is everyone's issue. Policymakers kind of ignore this issue. Well, because maybe most of policymakers are men and <laughs> they just don't understand.
1: This is Generation One from University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. Hello and welcome to Generation One. I'm Mark Mazin, Professor of Geography here at UCL, researching climate change in the past, the present, and even the future. Over the course of these podcasts, we have covered a real wide variety of topics, from sustainable fashion and tree planting to plant-based diets and the importance of finding economic solutions to the challenge of climate change. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a really important issue within the climate debate, the role that gender plays in contributing to the crisis we find ourselves in, and, more importantly, how addressing gender issues could help us find a way out. But before I introduce my guests, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can get involved in the podcast and also UCL's work and campaigns. We have a website, ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate change. There you will find all kinds of news, research and practical information about how your choices can make a difference. We would obviously love it if you would rate and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from, not to mention to share it with your network. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, hashtag UCLGeneration1, where you can comment. We would love to get your emails with comments and suggestions for future topics. The address is podcasts, with an S, at ucl.ac.uk. If you want, you can send a voice note and we will include it in future episodes. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. This week we're talking about gender or gender inequality and how it intersects with climate change. We don't want today's episode to focus on how climate change affects women more than men. We all know this, and there's lots of research out there to prove it. If you want to learn more, you can check out our lunch hour lecture on this topic, available on audio and video formats from UCL Climate Change website. But today, we want to focus not just on how, but why, and also what we can do. Now, this is obviously a huge topic and has many layers. However, we're hoping to make a dent in this discussion with our two brilliant guests. Firstly, we have Dr Virginie Le Meson, who is co-director of the Centre of Gender and Disaster here at UCL. Her research looks at gender inequalities and violence-related risks in places affected by environmental changes and disasters. I'm also very pleased to be joined by Mathilde Renard. Mathilde is a graduate of Science Po in France and the University of Leeds. Her research focuses on the gender climate nexus. Mathilde currently works for the UNFCCC gender team and will be starting her PhD in Leeds in October. So welcome both of you. I'm going to kick off with probably the biggest question – Some people who don't study this subject may be sceptical about why we're dedicating a whole episode to gender. So can I start with Virginie? Can you explain to our listeners why gender is so relevant to dealing with climate change? And then we'll come to Mathilde.
0: Thanks, Mark. Um, I could offer two reasons. Um, And the first one is from an academic perspective. A gender approach to study climate change draws on feminist environmental research And this is crucial to understand how human societies rely on their environments. How do people in some contexts destroy natural resources while others dedicate their lives in protecting nature? What are their reasons, their constraints or values that shape people's interactions with their environments? And it is difficult to find answers to this question without understanding human and power relations, which is why agenda analysis is such a fundamental research tool and linking gender and climate change is a way to better understand how different people perceive climate change, how they are affected by it, if they care or not about the environment, and also who decides how to address the issue. And in the second reason, from a, a human rights perspective, taking a gender lens is useful to observe and understand who makes decisions on societal development pathways. And what we see is that women are still systematically underrepresented among policymakers at the heart of climate governance, for example. And this lack of parity is damaging for the ambition of the negotiations because it is shown by research that women's representation in parliament leads the governments to adopt more ambitious climate change policies.
1: So can I bring you in, Mathilde, because you're actually working for the UNFCCC gender team. So why do they feel this is so important to actually deal with?
2: Hi, thank you. Well, the UNFCCC approach to gender is really driven by COP25 approach to gender. So I'm not, obviously, I'm talking on my behalf and on the behalf of the UN. Gender is such an important topic here, because it is about taking a systemic approach to climate change. So as Virginie mentioned, you know, the real thing is as well is really to look into this systemic approach. It, gender equality is interesting. And the gender climate nexus looks really at not just gender and not just women and men, obviously, but also at how we like relationship with each other, And how these relationships with each other affects our relationship with the natural environment.
1: So if we build on that, Mathilde, what role do women have when we're looking at both adaptation and mitigation efforts?
2: There's many studies looking at, you know, women in developing countries privileging climate resilience agriculture because their gender roles pushes them to think about the future of their children. And so they want to be able to provide for their family and their subsistence farming is getting more and more climate resilient. That would be a good example. In terms of mitigation, as Virginia mentioned already, there's some studies that looked into how female parliamentarian across the globe are making more eco-conscious choices in terms of policies and how they can influence governments to take more critical actions towards solving the climate issue
1: so virginie is this actually reflected in your research have you found that including women in power structures allows us to actually adapt and mitigate against climate change in a better way
0: there is an increasing amount of funding that goes towards climate change adaptation or resilience building and Organization works with local communities affected by climate change, for example in the Sahel and in Chad in particular, which I know best, and they try and find ways to support agriculture, access to improved seeds, better irrigation systems, increase water governance. But when one brings a gender lens into, for example, vulnerability assessments or risk assessments, something that constantly comes back is that the number one challenge that women face is violence towards them, often perpetrated by community or family members, but also in conflict-affected area, area, violence perpetrated by combatants. And so when they face this violence issue, it restricts their access to all the other resources that they need to function on a daily basis, whether it's water, fuel, food access to the markets, access to education. So many girls, adolescent girls, are restricted from attending schools because they are girls. And so bringing that gender lens into the picture is a way to see who is missing at the level of decision-making process, even at the community level. And if we brought more women at that level, all these issues related to care, education, health access would be much more put to the forefront and therefore the resources both from the community and from external assistance would be dedicated to those issues where women have a huge role to play and so i what i found in the research is that this is also magnified at the international level if we bring more women among the negotiations these issues related to to care are also more highlighted
1: I mean, that brings me on to the the next area, which is one of the SDGs focuses on gender equality. Specifically, Target says, adopt and strengthen sound policies, enforceable legislation for the promotion of gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls at all levels. So I'm going to ask you the difficult question, which is what are the opportunities for policy changes and how do we really think we can get more inclusive governance how how can we actually really bring this about in a, a, a diverse set of countries that we're dealing with
0: first of all the, the policy that promotes equality needs to to exist and in some countries they don't even exist but when they do exist often there's this huge disconnect between what the policy says and what it actually does in practice because of the lack of enforcement. And so more and more we see policy that establish parity among uh, parliament, for example, or in certain, certain sector. And one thing that we know, obviously, is that parity does not guarantee that women's needs and priorities will be taken into account. But still, their presence at the negotiating table, for example, or in the media as, as experts, these are still necessary for them to be able to express their needs and priorities.
1: Mathilde, are there particular policy changes that you are seeing within the gender team that should be adopted by uh, many countries?
2: As Virginie was saying, there are many policies that can be implemented and a lot of them like look at parity at first, but it needs to go beyond that. And it needs to start at the source. Sometimes, you know, when you go straight into the parliamentary... Area, it's almost too late for women to be just integrated there. It needs to start before. In terms of policies, what seen is that most countries have recognized the issue of gender inequality. However, in their implementation of policies, it very often lack the practical side of things. So just putting a policy up can be you can see some really good policies on paper, but that doesn't mean that they are implemented as they should be underground.
1: Virginie, can I ask a radical question? Do you think that something like quotas actually helps? So, I remember when Rwanda actually set up their first parliament post their troubles, they actually set a minimum of 25% of their MPs had to be female. Do you think quotas like that actually help?
0: Absolutely. And in fact, Rwanda is uh, one of the two only countries in the world that has absolute parity in the parliament, where women parliamentarians are actually more numerous than their male counterparts. The other country is Bolivia, at least from 2019 uh, statistics. And what we've seen in Rwanda is that there's a pretty good track record on investment towards education in the country compared to other neighboring African countries. So again, I haven't done a full PhD on uh, correlation between women's parliamentary and and education outcomes, but it it does make a huge difference, but also because it sets a precedent. It shows, it it brings a nice model for the youth, for girls and adolescent girls who are now entering into new sectors and new education disciplines to see that they actually can go all the way to leadership positions. Because if we don't have quota, then none of the other moral arguments have worked so far. Women still face backlash at every level of decision making and in all domains of their life.
1: I always get asked about population growth and climate change. And I always get that Daily Mail argument that we have too many people in foreign countries. How do you see the population debate through the lens of gender and climate change? And I'm going to start off with Virginie.
0: Yes, it is an, a useful aspect of the discussion because it brings a dominant discourse that has to be a little bit challenged or at least questioned. And this discourse is around the control over women's natality, which is within the broader context text of patriarchy. And often it's sort of in, re-emphasized stereotypes of uh, women in low-income countries have too many children, but we cannot talk about population growth as a driver of environmental degradation without linking it to consumption, and what drives climate change is the lifestyle of inhabitants in high-income countries, not necessarily the natality rates of women in, in the low-income countries. And that's why it ha- it's important to really connect this question with human rights and girls reproductive rights
1: matilde have you had to deal with this sort of i would say counterproductive argument about too many poor people
0: everyone i've
2: done anything to do with climate just when i say you know i'm, I'm doing it when i was doing my master's and i was like oh i'm doing my master's in climate change and environmental policy and people like oh yeah obviously there's too many people on this planet and the way that the population argument comes back in the gender climate debate is actually not in as originally put it, it's not too bad because you can take it from oh there's too many people on the planet to look if we were to educate and give rights to all these people that are already here then the population wouldn't grow as fast and maybe as well we'd be able to bring more equality in the debate you know and more inclusivity and more diversity because if people are better educated and that includes women but also other kind of marginalized groups uh, it goes beyond just women's right here and really goes towards social justice in general
1: i have to say i i call the population discussion uh, a sort of a zombie discussion because it's one of those things it doesn't matter how much evidence or clarity you bring to it the idea never really dies which really upsets me we've received two great questions from our listeners and i'm really pleased that we have one from a ucl student emily
0: as a young woman, I feel that feminine care is an area that my single-use plastic consumption is really high in. But I don't really feel that the onus should be on me to offset this. What can policy do to help women
1: feel like they're still making an environmental impact in a positive way? Uh, Mathilde, do you want to start with that one?
2: Yes, I think this one is a very interesting question because, it, again, it's shifting the, the issue of solving the climate crisis kind of like on the consumer, it is not up to you to have to change your entire life because you feel bad. The government should be taking actions for single use plastic to be banned from your average supermarket.
1: Virginia, I feel that sometimes feminine care is something that is ignored by policymakers and is clearly a gender issue. How how would you want to answer this question?
0: With a provocation, uh, when you say policymakers... Kind of ignore this issue well because maybe most of policy makers are men and they just don't understand the joke part in france actually until five years ago i think mathilde maybe you could correct me the hygiene products were taxed with vat that was the equivalent of luxury products so women had to pay more because our tampons were taxed as a luxury product And I think this is what is needed at the global scale, is to provide girls and women with a choice of non-polluting products that they use every month. And then also for this to work, it needs to be a topic that is no longer taboo. And it is still culturally, politically, socially very taboo. So personally, I went on a campaign now to openly speak about my periods, to not hide it's when I, I am on my periods, and to also openly discuss the different options that I have or don't have, especially when one does fieldwork, because that's a whole other area of research. Um, how do women manage their periods when they do fieldwork in places where there's not even access to clean water? It's a fascinating topic, and I'm glad that this person asked it to make it more of a public discussion. Brilliant answer. Yes, and if I can
2: add one thing, if that is okay. Because, Virginie, I'm completely with you on that. It's such a taboo uh, topic, and that is very sad. But the other thing I wanted to add as well is that all this plastic used in hygiene products also very bad for your body. There's so many natural solutions, and women have been using these natural solutions in many other places and throughout centuries, and we do not have to have all this plastic put on the planet, nor in our bodies.
1: I think that's a fantastic point, Matilda. I still get really worried that actually you do realise that we have microplastics in our blood now, which always shocks me. (laughs) Uh, We have another question from one of our listeners. This one is from Joseph. He asks, how can we ensure that we are talking about gender, that we are being inclusive of all genders and not just sticking to the gender binary? Do the discussions around gender and climate change focus on women or do we have a broader view?
0: Unfortunately, most research on gender and climate change has focused on women, but there is increasingly more research that tries to take a non-binary approach and that documents the experiences of other sexual and gender identities. So slowly and slowly, the narrative is getting a bit more nuanced. And also, I think what is really important is, similar to the fact that climate change should not be reduced to the differentiating impacts on men and women, we should really focus research on what is driving climate change, who are the the polluting sectors and who is driving them, so that the nuance is also more on the gender of those in the sector, if that makes sense
1: perfect. Mathilde, how does the UNFCCC gender group actually see gender in a much broader sense?
2: So, in all UN work that I've seen so far, and obviously, again, I'm reiterating the fact that I'm speaking on my own behalf, most of it is still framed as men versus women. But obviously, this is because most of the, as Virginie said, most of the research is still framed as such. However, it is always 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 recognized that gender is not binary but obviously as well something that i've seen that is increasingly done in all kind of research focusing on gender is to take an intersectional approach and when you look at a multitude of social factors such as you know location class age a lot of research are also integrating different sexual identities as well and so that is broadening our understanding of the intersection of these factors into the gender climate nexus
1: thank you so we have a last question which is there must be some burning myths of falsehood within the whole gender debate that must really upset you and get you sort of like hot under the collar so i'm gonna ask matilde is there is there something that you want to bust now you can you can really go for a rant if you want to <laughs>
2: well, mine is really the fact that gender equality is a woman's issue. It is not. It is everyone's issue. It's social justice. Gender equality is social justice. And when you start giving more rights to women, you're not just benefiting that particular group. You're actually benefiting the society as a whole, as we speak about during this entire podcast. Uh, more women in politics is more children and girls in schools for longer it has multiple ripple benefits that is not just benefiting women it's actually benefiting society as a whole
1: uh, matilde i can actually hear the listeners now actually cheering wherever they are whether they're on their airpods whether they're listening on sort of like their phone etc i can hear them all cheering that fantastic myth busting so Virginie, no no pressure then uh, what myth do you want to bust then <laughs> <laughs>
0: There is a statistics that keeps being repeated ever since I started undergraduate studies. And it is that women, apparently, are 14 times more likely to be affected by disasters than men. And I worked on a report six years ago with ODIA at my previous job, and we tried to compile a series of statistics on trying to show the, the comparatively vulnerability of women compared to men. And I just couldn't trace that statistic back to any sources. It kept showing reports, mostly from the UN, I'm sorry, being being cited over and over again. But there was no tracing back to an original piece of research that came up with that number. If somebody knows it, please send, give it to me. But it really saddens me when I see policymakers doing their homework, trying to get some key messages from research... And just using and recycling that statistic over and over again when it's not backed up by any research,
1: I think that is prime location for a decent PhD to uh, study that. So <laughs> I, I think I think you've uh, you've put out the offer there. I think that's perfect. So can I actually say? a huge thank you to Virginie and matilde for a brilliant podcast on gender and gender equality again so important when we look at the climate debate and the thing i'm going to take away from this and i'm basically building on both of what you said which is there is no climate justice without social justice and gender justice thank you so much for being on my podcast thank you so much thank you You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. In a moment, I'll be rounding up some of the notable climate stories that I've been tracking this week. But before I do, let me remind you about all the ways you can get involved in the podcast and UCL's work related to climate change, which you can find on ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast and send us a comment or question to podcasts with an S at ucl.ac.uk. That conversation with Mathilde and Virginie was recorded a couple of weeks ago, but now it is time for a quick roundup of the climate news stories for the week beginning the 9th of May 2022. A new study published in Science suggests that legal claims from oil and gas investors against governments could reach over $34 billion. This is because many oil and gas developments are protected by international investment treaties. The five countries with the greatest potential loss from these claims are Mozambique, Guyana, Venezuela, Russia, and surprisingly, the United Kingdom, with a liability of up to $14 billion. I recently attended the Royal Aeronautical Society conference towards a space-enabled net-zero Earth. At this meeting, a colleague, Adina Gillespie, who was a brilliant researcher at UCL and is now the Director of Business Development at GHGSat, showed satellite data of multiple methane leakages from an oil and gas refinery in Turkmenistan. Each one of these leaks was equivalent to the CO2 emissions of one million cars running for a whole year. But the facility refuses to do anything about these leaks unless they are paid to prevent them. India and Pakistan are in the grips of an extreme heatwave with temperatures in some places going over 45 degrees Celsius, which leaves people gasping in the shade and has driven demand for air conditioning. This climate crisis has led to record electricity demand. It seems that climate change is causing longer heat waves in this region, which in the short term is causing an increase in greenhouse gas emissions due to the demand for air conditioning. That is it for this episode of Generation One from UCL turning climate science and ideas into action. As I mentioned, we would love to hear from you with your comments, questions and feedback. So please send us an email to podcasts with an S at ucl.ac.uk. The next edition of Generation One from UCL will be available next Wednesday when Helen and her guests will be talking about bees and their important place in supporting our environment. Goodbye for now.